You're listening to the Replatform podcast sponsored by Amplint, an API first headless CMS and DAM in one, and Clavio, an email SMS marketing automation platform. We partner with them to help bring their wealth of industry experience to our audience. And you're listening to myself, James Gerd, and my co-host, Paul Rogers. Uh, how are you today, sir? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? Not, not bad. How's the laptop? It survived, thankfully, after I uh, spilled a glass of water on it, which is the second uh, spillage on it so far. And uh, this one seems to be doing a bit better than the first one, which is good. Well, third time lucky. See what else you can spill. Yeah. Totally put it out of action. Uh, another cracking episode lineup. So let's um, let's welcome our regular listeners. And also, warm welcome if you join us for the first time. We do appreciate it. We hope you enjoy the episode. Uh, subscribe to get new episode alerts. They drop every week, mainly on Tuesdays. And also, we'd love you to like us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, etc. Um, it really helps us uh, to know that we're doing the right thing. So today's episode, let's quickly introduce our guest, and then he can tell you a bit more about what he does and, and the business that uh, that he's um, co-founder of. So, David Marks, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, thanks for tuning in. So, you're co-founder and CMO at Kick Game, and we're talking to you today about the joys of growing a retail brand and Shopify and evolving into marketplace commerce. So. For those who might not have heard or don't know the brand well, can you give us a, a bit of flavour of what is Kit Game and where does it sit in the market? And also, what, what's your role as CMO? Yeah, so um, it's an interesting one. Um, it's quite a unique business. Um, so basically, Kit Game, well, our kind of strap line for the business is with a number one destination for rare and sold out sneakers. And I know in the UK, we use the term trainers, but kind of the terms evolve now. We take the US flavour, which is sneakers. Um so yeah, we, we, our whole kind of stick is we obtain high value and premium shoes, which you can't really find in traditional retailers. Um, and we make them accessible to everyday consumers. Um, the business models kind of evolved from just a pure play e-commerce to like an omni-channel um, physical retailer as well. So we've got five retail stores now. Um, we've got two in London. So one in Covent Garden, one in the Burlington Arcade in Mayfair. We've got one in Birmingham in the Boring Shopping Centre. We've got one in Manchester in the Arndale, and we've just opened up in Leeds as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, when we first started the business, we had one smaller retail store in Kensington. Um, but gradually, just over the last couple of years, we've expanded our footprint across the UK. Um, so, yeah, we, we we operate, as you mentioned, on Shopify. Shopify powers our e-com side. It, always pa- it also powers the... Um, POS and the physical retail side as well. So kind of the focal point of the business as it is right now. But I think as you touched on before, we are also kind of delving into the marketplace model. Um, and that in itself brings some complexities into Shopify. So we're also working with a bunch of other tools and systems that have kind of been integrated into our tech stack to help us deal with that. But um, yes, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a massive market. And just for anyone who's not really familiar with it, the sneaker resale market alone um, it's worth about $6 billion a year and kind of projected to grow to around $30 billion by 2030. Um, there's some big players in the business. Probably people have heard of the likes of StockX.com, who just got valued at $3 billion. They're about to IPO on the US stock market. Um, but we feel like we've created a huge brand awareness in the UK and Europe is like a real particular focus for us and the Middle East. So that's kind of where we are now and yeah uh, one quick question for Paul because I was talking about the Shopify bit is um you've got a strong background in e-commerce I saw you at James Allen um uh yeah. and you've got you've, you've worked in a senior online direct, uh, yeah, director role in many businesses what 
what made you decide to go into co-founding? Like, what, what was the prompt? Yeah, so kind of my background is, yeah, before, prior to, to doing Kit Game, I'd worked at various different e-com businesses, ranging from Collect Plus, you've probably heard of, where you drop your local parcels for returns. That was like my first role in a managerial position. Um, and that was amazing because I learned the whole logistical and operation side of the e-commerce world. Um, and then from there, I went to work at Oliver Sweeney, who you've probably heard of, like a, they're a men's fashion retailer for luxury high-end shoes. Um, and then I've worked at jamesallen.com, who's probably the largest private jeweler in the US. Um, and I've worked for waves.com as well, who are an audio plugin manufacturer and they sell, do tools for professional musicians and stuff like that. But me and my brother, Rob, who's the other co-founder of the business, we've just always had a huge passion for sneakers and what we call sneakerheads. We've always collected shoes and love shoes. And I think in 2013, we just spotted a gap in the market. And he came from like a corporate finance background. I was coming from the e-commerce tech background. We kind of just put our heads together and created this business. And the what really kind of rocketed us and like brought us off the ground is we started acquiring these shoes from different suppliers across the world. And we said we were selling them to kind of influential celebrities, people like football players and boxers, even Anthony Joshua, for example, at the time we were able to get hold of these shoes and they were called Yeezys. And there was a collaboration between Nike and Kanye West. Um, and these shoes were so such limited in demand that people would go absolutely crazy for them. Um, so we've started selling them over Instagram and people would, come to us, can you get me the shoes in exchange? I'll post them on my Instagram. So someone like Anthony Joshua would post it on his Instagram. We'd build a huge brand awareness around it, create a huge buzz, um, ended up turning it into an online business. And I think the first platform we used was OpenCart. Um, I created an OpenCart store myself. I used to do everything myself, did the theme myself. Um, and yeah, we just started buying and selling, slowly, slowly building the business until gradually we built up a huge following opened up our first store and yeah, one thing led to another. We got backed by a venture capitalist growth um, company and that put money into the business to allow us to kind of scale, um, recruit new staff, open new stores, invest into our tech stack. And yeah, that's where we are today. Right. Um, first question or first kind of proper question. Um, so we've spoken quite a lot in different kind of communities, I guess, around different Shopify bits. And as you say, Shopify is the core of your business, I guess. Um, can you give us a bit of an overview on your current tech stack and maybe how that's changed over time? Yeah. So, yeah, Shopify really is the core because it powers the e-commerce side. So the front end websites. So there's two now. There's the UK website which serves the UK and kind of rest of world market. And then we've got like a dedicated EU Shopify store, which just serves the European Union um, pretty much due to Brexit. We used to do everything under one umbrella, but uh, Brexit kind of forced our hand into splitting it into two separate stores. But yeah, they're both Shopify stores and this also powers the retail side of the business. And yeah, all of our apps, well, we've got like a really this is one of the amazing things about Shopify and I guess why they're the market leader and so many people are migrating towards it. They've got the richest app ecosystem out of all of the different players. And it's just so easy to set something up. So for example, Klaviyo, which is like our email marketing platform, it's just plug and play and it's so simple to use. And we use ShipStation for all of our fulfillment and that just plugs straight into Shopify. So anytime an online order comes in, that goes straight into ShipStation um, all of our click and collect orders, that's all done through Shopify. 
um, even things like on-site merchandising. So right now we're using Boost Commerce for our search and filtering, but we also use another app called Kimonix, which is actually a really incredible app, which not many people know about. Um, and it's probably one of the best apps that I've ever come across. And I really like, I preach about it to everyone I speak to because it's made such a big impact to our business. But what it essentially allows you to do is it customizes all of your Shopify collections based on different parameters, which are important to you as a business. So if you want to have, let's say you've got Nike shoes and you want to organize that collection by which shoes bring you the most profit margin, Kimonix, you can plug that into Kimonix and it will organize the collection based on which shoes give you the highest margin. Or let's say you have a lot of shoes and you've got a lot of inventory of one particular style, you can sort it by inventory and you can give different weights to different things that are important to you. So Kimonix is an incredible app and something that just plugs so easily into Shopify. Um, other things which are just really useful and kind of fundamental to our business are um, we use Stamped for reviews and Smile, which just also seamlessly plug in. Um, we're using Postco 360 for returns, which is just like a really simple, easy to use returns app. And it, it integrates directly with DPD, who's our fulfillment, which is our provider in the UK. And so anyone who just wants to create an easy return can just log on, generate and download a label. It all gets processed directly within Shopify. Um, other things that we use, fraud, we use a company called No Fraud. Our business is kind of targeted regularly by fraud and it's just it's really hard to keep up with if you're trying to do it yourself. So we started using this company called No Fraud. And since we've done that, we've kind of eliminated all of our chargebacks and incredible company. Um, we use another one called Real ID as well. So if you want to manually check somebody's ID, they can send out a targeted email to you and say, Paul, can you send in a picture of yourself holding your ID? And this is how we also verify a lot of the orders that we're not sure about. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like our tech stack from the Shopify side. Um, yeah, just a really rich app ecosystem, which fundamentally runs our business. Um, and then, yeah, we can come on to as well, but we developed our own PIM and inventory management platform, which ties directly into Shopify um, and kind of manages all of our product catalog, sends inventory updates back and forward. But I know you can do that within Shopify. It's just our business is quite complex and we needed something custom to be able to do that. And um, I guess when we've spoken in the past, you've been quite pro. I know Algonio is one that um, you're a big fan of. Um, what else, like, do you intend on um, making any other changes to the tech stats? Yeah, Algolia is a really interesting one. And yeah, I had a call with them last week, actually. And we do plan to onboard them as our main search provider. I did do, well, we've, we've scoped this out for a long time now, and I've spoken to absolutely everyone. And it's just, we feel like Algolia is probably the strongest in terms of search in itself. Um, all of our competitors use Algolia. Um, I don't feel like they offer the best service, but in terms of technology, I just think it's unrivaled. Um, we're also planning to either integrate Algolia or there's actually a competitor now called TypeSense. I don't know if you've heard of them, um, but they call themselves like a competitor to Algolia. So we're looking at Algolia versus TypeSense for our backend uh, PIM and inventory management platform. So it's either going to be Algolia or TypeSense, but yeah, just that instant search when you start typing and see results before you even end your search query is, is incredible from a conversion standpoint. A question on that as, as well. I'm really, I'm always intrigued to know why people 
tend to go to certain tools rather than others because there's a lot of tools in the marketplace in search especially and lots saying AI, ML and type ahead and self-learning, et cetera. What, what have you found in terms of the accuracy then? Um, because type ahead in itself is good, but it's not a ground, it's not like a deal breaker. So have you found just the, the accuracy and relevance of the results that are coming through are better then in terms, than other tools? Yeah, that's that's it. You hit the nail on the head. In terms of Algolia, when we've been testing it on our staging store, the accuracy is second to none compared to what we're using now. What we're using now is like a, a hundred, few hundred pounds a month in fees. Algolia, I guess, will end up paying a few thousand, but it, it's just incredible in terms of the different misspellings. The type ahead's great. And also, by the way, the type ahead can become expensive because Algolia charge you for every single keystroke. So a lot of people actually don't use the type ahead. They'll just wait for you to finish the query and search because it can save a lot of money. Um, so yeah, type ahead if you've got deep pockets. Um, but yeah, the, the actual search relevancy is incredible with Algolia. I can't speak so much for it for Clavu and other solutions like that. But in terms of our competitors who all use Algolia, the accuracy is absolutely incredible. But again, that's probably down to data accuracy in terms of what you provide them. So if yeah. you're giving them style codes and the correct titles and correct descriptions and all of your meta fields and you're indexing all of that data correctly within that platform, they're able to serve you a lot better, more relevant content. I think a lot of it depends what you want as well. Like you say, if you're kind of serving information and you want the most relevant based on what you're giving the engine, um, yeah, versus some of the more some of the other ones that are maybe slightly better with like machine learning and stuff like that. Um, but I agree, Algolia is definitely the best underlying technology, I think, in that space. But for, I would say though, for smaller brands, though, if you don't really have the budget for Algolia, Boost Commerce is an incredible option for smaller Shopify stores. Um, and don't get me wrong, we run, well, look, we're planning to do 50 million pounds this year online and we're still using Boost now. It can support large stores. It just really comes down to what are your business requirements. Um, so don't think for a second, just because you don't have the budget for like an enterprise solution like Algolia, your business won't survive or you won't be good enough. Boost can be incredible. Um, you just need to keep an eye on it a lot more and really focus on looking inside the app every day we do that we look at what people are searching for we look at the misspellings um we keep it updated regularly so boost is a great tool so yeah i wouldn't neglect it for any reason um it got a lot better recently as well with like all of the kind of business logic side of things so yeah i agree especially with metafields as well i know a lot of shopify stores use metafields you can in boost you can index your metafields and use that as search data so if you're utilizing metafields in shopify Boost is an absolutely fantastic tool. You can also use them as filters. So say you have color as a meta field, um, you can use that as a filter within collection pages and then you can filter on white or brown or black for your products. Yeah, I really like it for, from a filtering perspective. I still think it's the best solution on the market. I think a lot of people get confused or attribute issues to Boost incorrectly, but I actually think it, you know, it's much stronger than most of the other third parties out there. Yeah. Um, next question, Shopify POS related. So you use Shopify POS, and I think you said five stores or six stores? Yeah, five going on to six, yeah. Yeah, and um, so I guess where does Shopify POS start and end, and how do you find it? So for things like stock transfers, reporting on inventory, all of that kind of stuff, do you have any other solutions alongside POS, and how have you found kind of scaling from one to five stores with POS? Yeah, so Shopify POS, mixed bag really, and... I don't want to hammer it too much, but but look, if you've got a simple 
product catalog and you manage your stock within Shopify, then it's great. And it's really simple and easy to use. And you can probably scale it to 20 stores, but it just comes down to how complex your products is and your product catalog and your business requirements. Things that I don't like about it, like the search is extremely poor. Um, If you have a big catalog of thousands of SKUs, you can almost never get the exact item you're looking for if you're just searching for the title. If you search for the exact barcode, of course, it can pick it up. But the search is really, really poor. And sometimes in a stress situation, when you've got a lot of customers waiting and are trying to find the product, that can be like a really bad customer experience if you can't find the product that you want to that you want to sell. So the search isn't great. Um, I've also found, well, our retail team have found that it can be really slow in some instances and we've experienced quite a lot of crashes and it's particularly the card terminal itself that you have to use with the POS. If you're using Shopify payments, they give you these card terminals and they're really buggy and flaky and they disconnect the whole time. Um, we've got all of the latest iPads and everything. So it's just, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's been really mixed at the beginning when we first started off with one or two stores, it was okay, but that we will end up moving away from it but just because it doesn't scale with our business well and since we've started this marketplace model that's made it even more complex because every time we sell something in store now we send an api request from our pim which updates the pos it essentially creates a new variant inside the pos just for that sale and that process is very slow so this is actually a huge thing within kick game right now about how we approach the pos and selling in store with our pim because it just doesn't work with how it how it's set up currently. And physical retail took a took a real battering like 2020 into 2021 for obvious reasons globally. Um, and there's obviously green shoots come back. I'd love to hear about what what is the what's the role of the stores? Is it targeting different types of customers? Is it about experiential retail? Is it about providing omni-channel service or is it everything? Yeah, so it's, it's really everything. And yeah, like you you hit the nail on the head there, it's really about the experiential approach. And we utilize high-end retail locations to provide that in-person physical experience to customers, similar to like an art gallery, for example, where you'll have collections of ultra rare and super luxury items that are on display. And it's kind of like a minimalist contemporary aesthetic. Um, we also shoot a lot of content in our stores. So we've got various YouTube series um, one of them is like a celebrity shopping for sneakers series where we get various artists, influencers that come into store um, and they shop around, they pick the shoes that they want and we film it. Um, we've got like a just in series where our presenters will go through the new releases and talk about what's come out that week. Um, we've got a hidden gem series where they'll go down to the warehouse and they'll pick out really rare shoes, maybe from 10 years ago, which people haven't thought about and discuss them and talk about them. So we utilize our stores from a content standpoint more so than anything. And then also we do events inside the store. So we've done like album launches and merch and signings where artists have come into the store and they've kind of given away merch and albums and they've done it within the store. And we've put up all different things around the store about the albums. And so, yeah, from a, it really is experimental. So from the events and the content, and then we also think offer things like the click and collect, which is massive for us, We've just actually integrated them to the PDP's um, stock availability. So people can order online and just come into store and pick up, which they love. So it's, it's really a mix mixture of the actual branding and then the bottom line selling side. So, yeah, the stores are pivotal for us, particularly our flagship Covent Garden store, um, which is opposite Apple. It's an amazing store. 
Yeah, I, I just noticed you do uh, old New Balance, so I'm going to have to be popping in there and having a look next time I'm in. New Balance is interesting, by the way, that they've come up so much in the last year. Um, a few years ago, you wouldn't have really heard of New Balance in our industry, in the resale industry, that is. Um, but I don't know what's happened in the last year, but there's been an absolute explosion, and New Balance is massive now. Um, there are people in our team that have been looking at them, and one of them was going to pay like five hundred pounds for a pair yeah. of New Balance. I was, yeah, shocked. It's crazy how the thing in our industry trends change, things come in and out so quickly. You would have thought, like Air Jordan, for example, they were only big in the US. Like they've only come over to the UK in the last few years. You never used to see women or females wearing Air Jordans in the UK, but now it's like the whole kind of landscape has changed and trends and it's amazing in terms of the sneakers in the uk yeah and it's it's such a competitive thing to find something that's slightly unique that isn't mass uh, you're walking down the street and there's 20 people wearing the same pair of trainers um yeah it, I, I can imagine it's quite competitive to get those ones before the sizes run out as well yeah and that's our that's our usp against the likes of people like Foot Locker or office shoes those shoes are kind of available to everyone um, our kind of USP is come and get something unique, which not many people have, or not many people would have seen like a unique colorway or a special edition or a special collaboration, um, which makes it really appealing to, the, to everyday consumers. And related to the the the, uh, the re- physical retail stuff is is international. So you've got um, international. I'm assuming is probably quite a big part. Of, you said 50 million. Like you know, how big a part is it of that revenue base, non UK sales? Right, right now, I'd say 80% of our sales are UK. Um, it was bigger prior to Brexit and then Brexit happened and our hand was forced and we had to open up a local. So two months ago, we opened up a local fulfillment centre in Eindhoven in the Netherlands um, and we set up a separate Shopify store. So we have kickgame.co.uk for the UK and rest of the world and we've got kickgame.com, which just serves the European Union. So we're hoping, well, one of the big goals of this year is to scale that store and scale that business because for a while, customers were paying horrible, egregious taxes and duties on our UK stores in order to get their good ships over to them. So eventually we just turned off that side of the business and we only sold um, into the UK. But now we've turned it back on. We've got some work to do to really build up and scale that business and kind of increase the split between the two regions because the, the Europe is huge. The likes of Germany, France, Sweden, Denmark, these are massive, massive markets for us. Um, so we've got a lot of work to do there. And what is the, what's the kind of envisioned strategy for it? Because you know, Shopify has some limitations in terms of how you manage domains for international, unless you're yeah. going to headless through. Are you seeing it as, well, we're going to create specific local country sites, translated, you know, the full works, or are you going to expand slowly and, and test and trial before going to that extent? Yeah, so it's it's what you said. We're going to expand slowly and kind of test it. And so right now, the the EU site, the kickgame.com, is just all of Europe. And we haven't kind of localized one specific territory. Um, The goal eventually, towards the end of the year, is to go headless. And at that point, we will put everything under one domain. Um, So we're not going to invest too much time localizing specific markets when we are going to go headless. So but yeah, like, like you said, we're just going to slowly roll it out to those key markets. The content that we put out might be a bit more localized. So we are doing things with different influencers. For example, in the Netherlands, there's a lot of big YouTubers and TikTokers where we'll put out specific content in a, in Dutch or 
in French if, if we're working in France. So the content itself will be localized, but the actual website experience will all just be, yeah, one one domain. But Shopify, you're right, does have its limitations. And I know they're trying to make things better now. And a lot of stores can operate under one domain with the, you've got taxes and duties within the checkout now, you've got multi-currency, you've got price books and things like that. But again, it just really comes down to your business requirements and your product catalog, um, whether you want to have a separate store or not. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you've just mentioned headless before you were talking about the kind of bespoke marketplace, PIM, OMS that you've kind of built out. Um, there's a lot of work there. And one of the things we've talked about in the past is kind of in-housing of development versus agency versus contractors. And I know you've changed uh, your approach a few times on here. Yeah. Um, and I know at the moment you're doing a lot of an agency in New York. Like, where are you currently and what's your kind of long-term play in terms of the development team structure? Yeah, so like you said, we've, we've tried everything. We've done in-house agency freelancers. And I guess like all things, it, it depends on exactly what you're trying to accomplish. But we kind of ended up splitting it into two functions. So for the front-end tasks, we work with various freelancers on an ad hoc basis um, where we have like an on-site roadmap of various projects which we want to attack um, we have like a trello board of everything that we split out into and we kind of set them set them off to different freelance developers and we've built up a good relationship with maybe two developers that we work with on a regular basis but prior to those two we were actually just working with you're probably familiar with storetasker.com they're like a freelancer website for shopify developers and I really can't speak more highly of the service. Yeah, it's incredible. If you're a smaller Shopify brand and you want something small done, even even a big task, but you don't have the budget for like a full-time dev or an agency, you can just head over to StoreTasker, put out your project brief, and you can get stuff done really quickly and really easily. So yeah, I've made some incredible contacts through using that service. But yeah, essentially our front-end Shopify work we've done is, is with freelancers. And, and then the more complex stuff with the PIM and the Marketplace app, we've worked with an agency called The Van Group, who are based out of New York, um, although a lot of their staff are quite kind of spread across the world. Um, it's run by a guy called Xavier, really, really talented bunch of guys. Um, they know Shopify inside out. Um, they're really technical. They understand the custom app development side. There's a lot of Shopify agencies out there that do like the actual web development side. And don't get me wrong, they're fantastic at that, but they also really understand the custom app development side which was key for us um and that project is huge and it requires a lot more resources so you've got like multiple back-end developers front-end developers you've got devops qa project managers um so yeah we really needed like a bigger agency to handhold us and walk us through that project although we just have hired a new principal lead engineer full-time on our side who will work alongside the van group and kind of represent us um, who'll be in our office. And it was just important to us to have someone that was there alongside us. And one thing I've learned since the start of the pandemic is you can't really beat that face-to-face time, those face-to-face meetings. Look, Zoom and Slack is great for like project management and working remotely, but sometimes you just need to have those meetings where you can put your ops director in front of the developer, show them the actual physical process, the physical issue. And that's what was really important for us. Um, so, yeah. And so beyond the development team, what does your overall team look like? So obviously you've got the CMO title, you've talked a bit about influencers and TikTok and things like across e-com and marketing. Like what does the rest of your team look like? Yeah, so at the beginning, it was just um, 
me and my brother Rob, we co-founded the business and we kind of used to just do everything ourselves. And now we've grown to 70 full-time staff and a lot of those are retail staff. But yeah, the, we split into kind of the management team, which is myself, Rob, and then our MD, Alicia Thompson, who's incredible, who's our leader and keeps the business running. Um, we've got our ops team run by a guy called Nick um, and that's all of our warehousing operations and stock and everything like that, all of the order and fulfillment. We've got a retail team, um, a customer service team, uh, and then we've got like a marketing and design team, which we kind of put into one team. Um, and then lastly, the e-com and product team. So that's kind of how we split out the different teams within the business. But yeah, it's uh, it's, it's grown really quickly. In the, in, uh, specifically over the last two years um, as we've scaled. But yeah, it's, it's a big team now. And yeah, you mentioned earlier about being 50 million revenue. So that's yeah. impressive like uh, revenue. That's what we're forecasted for 2022. Yeah. So yeah, 2021 was just, just close to 30. But yeah, we're forecasted to, to do 50 this year. So, I mean, that amazing. And congratulations. That is impressive growth uh, targets. One thing I'd love to dig into on that is um, my understanding is that you did work around like CRO and optimization. It's what every business as it matures gets more into. Love to know yeah. how you've gone about that. Like, do you... Have you gone out and partnered in the same way that you, you use apps to achieve capability or have you brought that skill set in-house in order to drive a program of optimization? Yeah, so it's pretty much been in, in-house and I know there's some incredible and talented CRO people out there and maybe we should be speaking to people to kind of further develop that. But right now we do a lot of research about what we could do to improve the experience and we kind of just take it on board ourselves and kind of project manage the task ourselves and then put it out to developers to implement. But I guess some of the things that we've done, which I guess everyone's really familiar with are things like site speed and core web vitals. And I know that's probably one of the hottest topics right now because Google puts such an emphasis on it and people can become a bit too obsessed with it, to be honest. Like you can get incredible sites that do billions, things like Gymshark. If you have a look at their core web vitals and their site speed is poor, And I don't think it really has any impact on their business. If you've got a product which sells and there's a high demand for, people are always going to buy it, no matter how quick your site is. Look, if you're left loading for ages, but if you can, if we're talking about a few milliseconds of site speed and stuff like that, it's not going to make a huge difference. And people do obsess about it a bit too much, but it's definitely something which we've tried to focus on at least anyway. And going headless, I guess, that's probably the biggest selling point of going headless, the kind of sub-second load time um, and stuff like that. So yeah, cool web vitals and site speed is one thing that we've tried to kind of improve, but not obsess about it too much. Um, other things we've done from a CRO standpoint, we've done things like coming soon calendars where we've put out releases of shoes that are coming in advance where people can sign up and get notified when they get released so as soon as these shoes come onto the market you get like either an sms or an email um and you can go and buy them straight away things like in-store availability so the ability to have a look where the stock's available online and then go into store and purchase them um one one app that we work with that's really cool which you're probably familiar with is hero where you can do virtual shopping directly from the website so you'll come to the website, you'll see a shoe that you like. You can then chat with a sales assistant directly inside the store. So you can have a look at the shoe on camera and talk to the system whilst you're browsing it online. Um, that service is incredible. And I believe they just got acquired by Klarna 
um, incredible company. A friend of mine, Adam Levine, who I who I knew from a young age, actually runs it. Um, a lot of retailers using it now. Um, but yeah, that, that's that's a huge conversion booster for us because customers love to see the physical goods in somebody's hands and maybe discuss it and ask how it fits. In our industries, different shoes fit in different ways. Some come up small, some come out, come up big. The colors can sometimes look different. So the ability to actually see that shoe on camera and discuss it with a sales assistant um, is second to none. Um, and then just other things we've done, things like video galleries. I think video is such an important tool these days. Um, we kind of embed now all of our video content into the website. So if there's a celebrity doing a sneaker shopping video, we'll put that onto the website and then we'll put the products which they bought in the video directly under it. So a direct sell through from the video, which is great from a conversion standpoint. And is, so is that being live streamed or you mean after it's afterwards been, yeah, yeah afterwards i'd love to do something with live streaming we just we, yeah we haven't got around to it yet all right well maybe, maybe there's a future episode to be done uh david when you've got into that because i mean it's definitely this this year i know there's a lot more people i'm talking to are looking to to either pilot it or or funnily, really- yeah funnily enough we actually just had tiktok into our offices last week and they've launched something called tiktok shop um and it's kind of do you remember like those old school like sh- um shopping programs on the tv where you see someone talking with a product and then you QVC and you call up online, you buy it. So it's, some, it's similar to that, but they've launched it within TikTok where you do a live stream and you can buy product directly through the stream itself. Um, they're just trialing it now. So it's something that we're looking at. Yeah. Well, yeah. MNS just announced their live.com last, last week, didn't they? Doing live shopping, purchase directing. So yeah, it's an interesting thing. I, I like the point you made actually about the, you know, optimization of CRO and, and you know getting things like core performance and web vitals, which we always talk about as being important. Um, but that if you have a unique product that it becomes less. And I, I guess there, there's probably some of some of your products where the speed is not going to stop somebody getting it when there's only one left in stock. I was looking at exactly. one, a Nike Air Yeezy Red October, uh, £11,999. I can't imagine a slow site with only one item left is going to deter people. This, this is it. If you've got a product, and this is why I always tell people if they ask, like, what's your advice? If you can nail your product's like demand, like if you've got a product which sells itself, yeah, then you don't really need to do much to, to cut else from a marketing standpoint. You don't need to invest much. If your product sells itself, then you're kind of set. You've got other issues to worry about, but that's kind of the key here. If you can really create a buzz and demand around your core product, that's you that's half the problem in itself yeah absolutely yeah um i think the tiktok point i think we should do a separate episode on um all of that piece james like buying through instagram and tiktok um we've had a few clients that have done pretty significant volumes by both recently we've got one client that does between 10 and 15 percent for instagram checkout now which i thought was um really interesting are they doing the tiktok shops the new feature that they're doing the live broadcast one yeah, and um, Maplin, who we had on before, I know did really, so they've started doing it with influencers. So um, I think they launched it when it was in beta a couple of months ago, and they essentially just had influencers reviewing tech products, uh, and then you could buy direct through TikTok alongside it. Um, and they said that it performed quite well. Um, yeah. yeah. The, the only thing about that channel is that TikTok do end up taking like a 5% commission for every sale that goes through the platform. So if you've got the margins to do it, then yeah, yeah by all means. But I just know some brands do operate off relatively small margins and then to end up giving away 5% I don't know if it's negotiable or not, but to give away 5% of TikTok is quite a large sum. 
Um, yeah, so something to consider. They're not giving away 5%. I think the reason they're doing over 10% is because TikTok is massively incentivizing both them and the customer. Um, so I think they were like funding some shipping promotions and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it still appears to be growing in some of the fashion um, verticals. Um, for next question, and this is a big one that you've kind of touched on already a little bit. So you mentioned the marketplace um, kind of shift that you're making. Um, can you give us a bit of an overview on what that looks like? Um, what the relationship is with ticked, uh, sorry, what the relationship is with Shopify, um, and then what the tech stack looks like as well. Yeah, so this is where it becomes a bit complex. So, and I'll try and keep it as kind of simple and straightforward as as I can. But right now. Kitgame owns the vast majority of all of its stock. It's all stored in our warehouses in London and Eindhoven. Um, in order to rapidly expand our stock and product catalog, we want to allow third parties to sell through our online and retail stores. In order to do that, we had to build a custom, you could call it a PIM inventory management app that's connected directly to our Shopify. Um, and I think I mentioned there's a few very successful businesses that operate a pure marketplace model. Most of them are US-based, so like the likes of StockX and Goat and Flight Club and Stadium Goods who got acquired by Farfetch. But those are pure marketplaces. They don't hold any of their own stock. So what we've built is kind of a hybrid approach where we're still going to always have our own stock, but we're also going to allow third parties to sell and transact for our website. Um, and it's not like the traditional eBay-style marketplace there's, there's two different ways to sell, essentially. So there's what we call remote sell. And say, Paul, you've got a pair of New Balance shoes, which you've acquired, which are really valuable. They're worth 500 pounds. You would come to sell.kitgame.com. You would list those shoes. You would say, I want 500 pounds for them. And as soon as they sell, we, we would send you an email saying, hi, hi, Paul, your shoes have sold. Here's a DPD label. We need you to now send them into our warehouse so we can inspect and authenticate them. And then we will ship them on to the end user. So it's not you selling directly to the customer. It's all coming directly into our warehouse first. And the reason why we do that is for the authentication procedure. This Our industry is absolutely loitered with fakes and inauthentic goods. And I guess it's similar to other industries like watches and handbags and stuff like that. But we pride ourselves on operating like a really like strict authentication procedure and with that throughout our business so that everything is 100% approved and legit. And you have to do that in our industry because there's just so many fakes that come from China or all across the world. So your shoes would then come into our warehouse. We would send them out to the customer and then we would pay you out. Um, we also offer a separate model, which is actually quite unique. It's called the ship to warehouse model where you can ship your stock in advance. Say you've got hundreds of shoes at home. You don't want to store them at home. You can send them directly to our warehouse. We'll store them for you. We'll pre-authenticate them. And then as soon as they sell, we'll just pay you out straight away. 90% of people will prefer the remote sell option because they can list it on multiple marketplaces. They can list it on KitGame, eBay, StockX, and whoever sells it first essentially get, gets, gets the sale, right? So people prefer that model. But a lot of the power sellers and our trusted kind of partners do like the ship to warehouse where they can just send all of their stock. They don't have to store it. We'll store it for free. And what that means is we can sell this consignment and marketplace stock in our retail stores, which is a really powerful feature for us because it just gives us access to so much more. Um, but yeah, that's that's essentially how the marketplace works. And the reason why it's really complex with Shopify is, let's imagine, I don't know, you've got that new balance shoe for 500 pounds. Let's say I've also got the same shoe in the exact same size and we've both got it. If we both want to sell that on kit game, 
Shopify doesn't really know how to do that. Shopify only understands one price field. You want to sell yours for 500, but I want to sell mine for 550. We had to build a system where it generates a queue. So essentially lowest prices first get sent into Shopify. As soon as your shoe gets sold, Paul, my shoe would then get sent to Shopify as the next shoe in the queue. Um, and that's kind of how the marketplace model works. And that's why Shopify is not really catered to be a marketplace. Um, it doesn't understand different prices for one field. So that's that's how we built our marketplace and our PIM, essentially. It operates a queue and sends inventory the whole time via a REST API and via GraphQL to Shopify to update it. A question on the international element of that. Uh, I'm not sure if this is going international initially, but one of the big challenges I think some businesses have now is what's the VAT implications if you're if you're providing marketplace commerce, but you're not the seller of the item, it's sold by somebody else, but you're managing the customer relationship. Well, what, what fun have you had uh, getting your head around VAT obligations yeah. and, and implications for you and what you need to charge and not charge? So there's a, there's a really interesting um, thing. I don't know if you've heard of it. You called it have you heard of the margin scheme? No, I haven't. What it's is called it? the it's called the VAT margin scheme, and it's a special margin scheme created by the government that allows you to sell what they call like antique secondhand goods, and you don't. So we don't actually charge VAT because you 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 pay I think seventeen point seven five percent of the profit of the shoe. Um, I don't know the specifics of exactly how the intricacies of how the scheme works, but we don't charge VAT on any of our shoes because we operate under the under the margin scheme. It's the same scheme that all, a lot of marketplaces operate under. Oh, interesting. What was it called again for our listeners? It's, uh, called, the, it's called the VAT margin scheme. Okay. Uh, but that only applies to certain types of... It only applies to marketplaces, yeah. So, And it doesn't apply to... Say, say I, we've acquired stock from... A supplier, if that supplier is back registered, we can't sell under the margin scheme. You can only operate it under very specific conditions. So we that's why we acquire our stock from private individuals who aren't back registered. Or well, every day we actually get people coming into our store selling us stock. But yeah, it, there's there's very strict requirements operating it, and it is quite complex. Um, yes, uh, not an area I I specialize in for very good reason because it is me neither, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, interesting, but that's given me something new to read up about. Thank you. Uh, and uh, final question for me is: um, so you, you said uh, you plan to go up to fifty million uh, this year. That's in the budget. What what is the what have you got planned for this year? Is it is it primarily focused on the e commerce side? Is it store expansion? Is it everything? Yeah. So I guess there's a few different things. There's Europe expansion, which I think I touched on briefly before, and that's just kind of refining the operations there, the marketing and scaling that business because. There's just so much we can do in Europe. Um, so just getting that engine running and running smoothly and just scaling that business over the next year. Um, we want to do two additional pop-ups in the UK. So we're just kind of narrowing down those stores. Um, that will take us to seven stores. Um, and then we've also recently had meetings in Dubai about opening a store in Dubai Mall as well. So we're looking at opening in Dubai and that will be our first international store outside of the UK. Um and then I guess one of the other huge growth areas for us is the marketplace expansion. Right now, it's in a closed beta. So eventually, at some point this year, we'll we'll open it up and let just anyone join and sell through the business. Um, and then the big tech project for this year is the headless transition and a kind of like a what we call a microservice transition. We're going to sl- do it slowly. So we're not just going to completely rip out everything in one go. Um, 
will set up like a solid, like scalable headless foundation and slowly do things like the customer relationship platform will do, maybe work with segment and then we'll look at the order platform and we'll do something. Everything's going to be microservice based. And I guess the last piece of the puzzle will be the checkout, which will be running on Shopify and eventually we'll move to our own checkout as well. But yeah, we'll, we'll slowly move away from Shopify. Interesting, interesting. Um, and yeah, the, the marketplace, is the aim with that to to onboard more and more sellers or are you keeping it at a manageable level initially? Because it obviously has a resource implication the more sellers you try and onboard. Yeah, it's not even just a resource. It also has financial implications, right? Because so when you sign up to sell your shoes, we take a like a cut, like a fee to process that sale the same way that eBay does or Amazon when you sell through those platforms. But when we sell our own stock, we can sell it at a much, uh, much better profit margin. So we've got to really kind of carefully balance the consignment versus our own stock because it can cannibalize our own sales. Um, so that's why we're just kind of cautious about releasing it to the public. Um, we don't really want sellers selling stock that we're already selling ourselves because they can undercut us um, and eventually, essentially eliminate our margins. So we're just going to cautiously release it and we're going to educate consignors and sellers about what stock we want them to sell so gaps in our own stock which we don't have and it's going to be more of a cautious approach and that's why it's a hybrid marketplace it's not the same as StockX or go or flight club who are just pure marketplace models ours is more akin to something like farfetch um who's like a i don't know if you know but farfetch also have a marketplace model behind the scenes and yeah it's it's going to be just carefully, carefully released to, yeah. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Otherwise, you become like an, an Amazon star where you have multiple products competing on the same list and then it's a race to the bottom on price. And yeah, by the way, don't get me wrong, to, to the end user, they won't really even know that it's a marketplace model. When you come onto our site, onto the product page, you'll be a normal product page. You won't see that you're buying from a third party because everything comes into our warehouse first and we inspect and authenticate it. You essentially buy, it's like buying directly from Kit Game. So it's, it's a hybrid approach. Cool. Um, that's all our questions, Dave. I really appreciate you taking the time, David. It's been really interesting talking to you. No, yeah, it's been great. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. No, that's great. And um, if anybody wants to reach out and learn more about like Kit Game and if there's anyone listening thinking, oh, well, maybe I could be a supplier to the marketplace, how do they contact you? Um, you just shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Um, I'll come back to you. Um, that's probably the best place. Cool. Thanks. And thanks as always for people for listening. Uh, keep an ear out for the next episode. It lands uh, every Tuesday. And let us know of any topics you'd like us to feature and, and tell us why you'd like. Um, also, do subscribe. Uh, the more, the merrier. And thanks to our um, episode sponsors, Clavio and Ampliance. See you next week. For more information on this topic, head over to replatform.fm for our audio podcasts. To discuss a project, or if you'd like to chat about any of the topics covered in this episode in more detail, please reach out to myself, James Gerd, or my co-host, Paul Rogers, via LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and keep your ears peeled for the next episode.